This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with, walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand why this is even in the Bible. Help us to understand, Lord, what you're doing here with these long lives and all of these deaths. Help us to understand who Enoch is. Help us to understand what Lamech's hope is. God, we need your help today. So help us by your Spirit's power to understand your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, when we covered the end of chapter 4, really the second half of chapter 4, we saw that there are essentially two ways to live. The first way we saw with Cain's family, live for yourself 
and for the greatness of your own name. And the second way we saw with Seth's family, live as a people who call upon the name of the Lord. Seth's family did that. They were calling upon the name of the Lord. That meant that they were worshiping God. They were living in obedience to the Lord. They were teaching their kids about the promises of God. They were, to put it simply, living in light of the promises of God. That's the family line we're going to look at this week. Seth's family tree. The generations who were hoping in Christ or hoping for Christ in a fallen world. Rather than going through each and every family member of Seth's lineage, here's how we're going to approach this. We're going to start with the big picture. All right? There's a lot of living and there's a lot of dying here. So there's a whole lot of living and we can't ignore these these really, really long lives. Neither can we ignore that repeated refrain that we see at, at the end of each of their lives. And he died and he died and he died and he died. And then we'll look at the man who didn't die. Kind of a break from the norm, Enoch, the man who walked with God. And then finally in our last part, we're going to zoom in on Lamech and examine what it means that he was hoping in the gospel. So then to be a people who are calling upon the name of the Lord means we're living and dying, we're walking, and we're hoping. That's what it means to live in light of God's promises. Then, the very beginning of time, and that's what it means to live in light of God's promises now. So a, bit of, a bit of prologue before, before we get into the, the, the living and dying and the hoping, or the walking and the hoping. Uh, this is actually really important. Seth, the reason why chapter 5 is here, Seth is the family line through which the promises of God will come. All right, so, so Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel and Seth and many other sons and daughters. Abel's line was cut off. He, he died. Cain's line turned out to be serpentine. Seth is the appointed one. And we see that in Genesis 4.25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, and whenever you see that explanation of the name, it's a, it's a, it's a rephrasing of the name in, in English for us. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. The name Seth means appointed. He's the appointed one from God through whom the offspring of the promise will continue. And to catch you up, if if you haven't been with us, the offspring of the promise is a reference back to Genesis 3.15. All of this is cumulative. When God cursed the, the serpent... In Genesis 3, but for his subterfuge, God promised that from Eve would come an offspring who would one day crush the serpent. So there's this anticipation as you read Genesis. And really all throughout the Bible, who is that offspring going to be? When you hear me talk about gospel hope, In Genesis, and you're like, I don't see the word gospel there. But when we talk about the gospel hope in Genesis, what I'm talking about is this hope that God will fulfill that promise, that that offspring will come. So the end of Genesis 4 in our chapter today reveals that whoever the promised offspring is, he's going to come through the line of Seth. Seth, Seth's lineage 
is a lineage of faith in God and is the, is the lineage that God himself is, is sovereignly working through to bring redemption. And we see that at the beginning of chapter 5. So Genesis 5, 1 and 2 are a sort of review of chapters 1 through 3. Adam was made in God's likeness. See that in verse 1? See that? Going, that's an echo of Genesis 1.26. It's a reminder that this is still fundamentally what it means to be human. That doesn't change because of the fall. Still made in God's likeness. Adam was made in God's likeness, and he passes that down. So despite the fall, we're still God's image bearers. We'll also see that after the flood. Adam and Eve, verse 2, Adam and Eve, male and female, received God's blessing. That's an important word. That's from Genesis 1.27 and 1.28. And that blessing, remember, was to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Not been cut off by the fall either. That continues. Verse 3, Adam fathers a son in his likeness after his image. This is Seth. Remember, his name means appointed one. We kind of miss that in the English because we know a lot of guys named Seth. but, But in the Hebrew, this means appointed one. This is like... The promised one, the one who's coming. He's the one who will continue the promise. So the blessing continues, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. The image bearing of God continues. The promise of the seed from the woman continues. In other words, at the very beginning of chapter 5, Moses makes it crystal clear, God's plan is continuing. Despite the serpent's opposition, despite the sin of Adam, God will multiply his image bearers. God will be glorified throughout the earth through his image bearers. God is the faithful one. God is the one who fulfills his promises. That's the framework, the, 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 the lens of verses 1 through 3 that we read the rest of chapter 5 with. So what then does it look like for Seth's family to live in light of God's promises, to live in God's faithful promise-keeping world. Well, it looks like, first of all, I told you part one, living and dying. Living really, really, really long lives and then dying. So verses four and five, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. Then he had other sons and daughters as all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And I'm just going to tell you, first of all, I, I, I think that means 930 years. Maybe give or take a few days. I, I, I just don't think that they're defining years that drastically differently than we are. And I don't think that this is uh, uh, just symbolic language. I think this is real. So Adam had Seth when he was 130 years old. That's crazy. And then he lives another 800 years, and that's crazy, having more and more and more kids all along the way. Having kids with one woman. For hundreds of years. <laughs> Don't miss that. That is lots of Genesis 1.28 happening. Lots of fruitful multiplying for a long time and then he dies. And lest we think that maybe Adam has, maybe he snuck a little bit of the fruit from the tree of life in his pocket and he's just been nibbling on that as, you know, out east of of the garden somewhere, that's not what's happening. It's not just Adam who lived this long. His son lives to be 912, his grandson 905, his great-grandson 910, 
And then Mahalal, 895, Jared, 962, Methuselah, 969. So like the, the ages are getting longer. Lamech, 777, and Noah, 950. So what is going on here? Why do these guys live such long lives? Well, first of all, a caveat that I had to kind of unravel this week. We cannot assume that everyone before the flood is living this long. All right, sometimes we kind of look back at this and we make this unwarranted leap that because these 10 men lived this long, therefore everyone in the era before the flood lived to be this old. And, and if that's the case, if everyone before the flood is living to be that old, then there must be something, something special about their genetic line or the, the tropical environment or, or a plant-based diet. We, we look for this naturalistic explanation because we live in a naturalistic, anti-supernatural age. But even if we were to look at this from a modernist scientific perspective, which we shouldn't, but if we were, and we were, as anthropologists, given a sample set of 10 people that span a couple thousand years, and given the exponential growth of, of the human race over this many years, that would have been hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. If we had those 10 cases... And we said that because we know these 10 cases lived a long time, therefore everyone lived that long, that's just bad science, isn't it? Nothing is said about the other sons and daughters from these families. We don't know how long they lived. We cannot project upon them these long lives. Nor do we know how long Cain's family members lived. Remember from chapter 4, there's nothing mentioned about their ages. There's something about these men. The ones who are listed that warrants Moses' telling of their ages. And we know that's the case because in a few chapters when we get to the genealogy of Noah's family, so things are kind of going to narrow down to Noah and then his three sons, and we'll see the generations of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The, the line of the offspring of the seed, or the line of the seed, the, the promise, goes through Shem. So what Moses is going to do there with Shem's family is tell us how long all of those offspring lived, leading all the way up to Abraham. But he won't tell us how long Ham's family members lived, and he won't tell us how long Japheth's family members lived. And he won't tell us about the branches from Shem's line that don't go to Abraham. So this is all about, when you, when you step back and look at Genesis, this is all about the lineage of Abraham. In fact, after we get to Abraham, the one through whom the seed of the promised most certainly comes, ages are hardly mentioned at all anymore. The genealogy of ten generations in Genesis 5, from Adam to Noah, and the genealogy of ten generations from Noah's son Shem to Abraham in Genesis 11, are the only two genealogies in all of the Bible that have, and there's a lot of genealogies in the Bible, these are the only two that have any ages attached to them. That should tell us something. That's a clue. What, what becomes important when we get to Abraham then, so this is all funneling down towards Abraham, what becomes important when we get to Abraham is the covenant with God and the promise that through Abraham the nations 
will be blessed. And that promise, that blessing of the nations, is not long life. It's eternal life in Christ. Do you see what's happening here? Long life, long life, long life. Abraham, promise, covenant, eternal life in Christ. So while it's possible that there is something physically or genetically unusual about these people, or maybe about the time that they live in, let me tell you this, that is not the point of the text. The point of the text is that the patriarchs of the line of the promise lived miraculously long lives. And I I can say miraculously because that's the only way this is happening. Lives that were extravagantly long before the flood and exceptionally long after the flood, all the way down to Abraham, who lived to be 175 and had a child at the age of 100. And that was considered what? It was a miracle. Right? It was a miracle. So God is communicating with that Isaac miracle in the context of Genesis that he has historically worked providentially through this family line and he's going to continue to work providentially through this family line. So the big picture, when you step back and look at Genesis as a whole, Abraham comes from this line of men. A line of men whose long lives were, here's my argument, a blessing from God. You see, the Israelites, you got to you stop thinking like it's 2022, put yourself way back then with Israelite people who are, have a much more supernatural worldview than you and I do. They weren't asking questions about genetics or alleles or telomeres or mutations along cell lines and cell proteins. To read that back into this text is, that's just silly. Okay, so don't do that. Their worldview was much more supernatural. They were much more interested in blessings and curses from God. That's their worldview. Blessings and curses. And from their perspective, Seth's lineage down to Abraham was a particularly blessed genealogy. Because to the Hebrew people, long life, long life was a sign of God's blessing. Now, where did they get that from? Did they make it up? No. This is all over the Bible. See, there's several places in Scripture. Just to, to name a few, Exodus 20, verse 12. This is in the Ten Commandments, the sixth of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. And if you think, well, that's just for those people, then no, 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 Paul repeats this in Ephesians chapter 5 or 6, somewhere in Ephesians. This is the command that comes with a promise. The command to honor your father and mother, mother comes with a promise of long life. Psalm 91 has a similar refrain to it. Psalm 91, 14, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, just like calling upon the name of the Lord, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is about Jesus, ultimately. But the promise is the same. God is giving long life the one who was calling upon his name. It's a blessing from God. These men were calling upon God's name. Another long life passage in Scripture is in Isaiah 65. And this was particularly interesting. This passage is looking forward from Isaiah's day to the age of Messiah, to the age of the restoration when Messiah is ruling. And in that time, Isaiah says, 
if a man dies at 100 years old, he will be considered accursed because 100 in that day will be young. This isn't looking back to Genesis. This is looking forward to Messiah's age. And then he says, these long-life people will be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. And they will live on God's holy mountain, which is to say they will be in the Garden of Eden again. So if we read these passages and this theology back into Genesis 5, and I think we should, because this is more authoritative than anything I could make up. If we read that and that helps us understand what's happening, then we can conclude that Seth's family, or at least these ten men from Seth's family, were uniquely blessed by God. And I think that's a something we can agree to. There's a unique blessing here. So again, it's more biblically consistent to say that there is something unusual about these particular men than it is to look for something unusual about this time period or the human race during this era. Right? So these are God's appointed offspring who carry the promise. They preach the promise. These are the men through whom Abraham and Isaac and the nation of Israel will come, followed by Judah and David and Solomon and the Christ. So in the line, in the line of the promise, are these ten men who lived incredibly long lives. And then they died. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. They all died. Or more accurately, all but one of them died. We'll talk about him in a minute. They all live these outrageously long lives. They return to the dust exactly as God said Adam and his kin would. Though they are of the promise, they are still under the judgment. Romans 5.12 rings true there, doesn't it? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. This is a picture of Romans 5.12. Paul goes on to say that death reigned. Think of that, that ruling language. Death is ruling from Adam all the way to Moses. Death eventually conquers even the longest of these lives. It's just, we, we think about that for a moment. Moses, Moses says this really matter-of-factly. But, but take, it, take in what it must have been like to live to be 969 years old. Think about, put yourself in Methuselah's sandals. To live that long and then to die. How many near brushes with death do you have over the course of that long of a life? A boulder rolls down a mountain and crosses the road six inches in front of you. A hundred years later, a, a, a tree falls after a rainstorm and it just misses your house where you're sleeping. A hundred years later, your oxen get spooked while you're plowing the field and they drag you a hundred yards. Your head just misses a stone in the field. In the, in the average 80-year lifetime, the odds of getting struck by lightning are 1 in 15,300, depending on where you live. Here, probably a lot less. But to live to be 800, just multiply those odds by a factor of 10. Right? So now you go from 1 in 15,000 to 1 in 1,500. How about, how, how about mistaking a poisonous plant for a good plant? Or you're attacked by a swarm of bees, or you're cutting, you're, you're, 
you're scything the barley, harvesting the barley, and you cut your leg with a, with a scythe, or you fall and break your neck. All of it, what, what can happen over 969 years? You could go on and go and on all the ways that, that you could die if you live long enough. And once you've lived 900 plus years, almost anything that can happen will happen, right? It's Murphy's Law. And yet, there you are, you're still alive. And you're always reminded death is near. Death is near. Reminded by your own life, but also by the deaths of those around you. I mean, once these guys live to be 200, living in a fallen world, they've seen at least a few of their kids die. And their grandkids and their great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids. Now quadruple that to, to 800 years. These men have seen a whole lot of death. Methuselah likely went to more funerals than all of us combined. These old patriarchs knew, perhaps more than we do, that death is the enemy. Death reigns. Death conquers all. And yet, despite the certainty of death, these men of the promise are trusting in the Lord. That's their legacy. They're trusting in the Lord. They're worshiping God. How much more so should we? Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For those of us who are in Christ... We live in the faith that Christ has conquered death. So we don't live in fear of death anymore. And if you're living in the fear of death, whether that's fear of cancer or COVID or car crashes, if you're paralyzed and anxious because you fear death, you're not truly believing in Christ's finished work. Christ has destroyed the one who has the power of death. He's delivered you from that fear. You can now live in the freedom of knowing that though you will die, death is but a shadow. Your soul will be taken into God's presence in heaven, and at Christ's return, you will be resurrected to life everlasting. What's interesting in this passage you see all of this death, and then right here in the middle of it, you get Enoch. And with Enoch, it's different, isn't it? Enoch's life is a, a foreshadowing of the one who will eventually escape death truly. With Enoch, there's this glimmer of hope that maybe death isn't the forever foe. And that leads us to our second section as we examine Enoch's life. He's walking with God. Though death is the enemy, the enemy that will not be conquered fully until Christ's return, death is the enemy, and death reigned over all of these families, but not all of them died. Not everyone died. Genesis 5.21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. And had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch was taken from this physical realm 
into the heavenly realm, God's dwelling place. And there's this understanding in the text that the reason he received this reward was because of his walk with God. Hebrews 11 says that by faith he pleased God. So what does it mean that Enoch walked with God? Some of you might be thinking of that, you know, in the garden hymn. You might be thinking just a closer walk with thee. There's a lot of hymns about this. What does it mean that Enoch walked with God? Now, this could be that God in some bodily form actually walks beside Enoch. It could also be figurative. Maybe sometimes one and sometimes the other. The text doesn't exactly, exactly say how we're to understand this, but either way, there are a couple things we know for sure. All right, so what do we know for sure about what it means that he walked with God? Well, to walk with God, first of all, it means to be going where God is going, right? You can only be said to be walking with someone if you're going in the same direction as them. Most often in Scripture, we see this described as walking along God's way or following God's path. Going on God's road, it nearly always has something to do with living in obedience to God. You're living the life that God has laid out for you. You're living in obedience to Him. We see this several places in Scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy 5, particularly. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live that it may go well with you, that you may live long. There's more long life promises there. Live long in the land that you shall possess. Deuteronomy 10, 12, very similar. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. When God blesses Solomon, Solomon becomes king and uh, God, Solomon asks for wisdom, and then God gives him this blessing, and he says to him, and if you will walk in my ways, and what does that mean? Keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will, here it is again, lengthen your days. Isaiah prophesies that, that there will come a day when all of the nations of the earth, that's you and me, all the nations of the earth will seek to walk with God in this way. Isaiah 2. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, we could just spend the rest of the day looking through all of the passages in the Bible that talk about this exact thing. Kings who walked in God's way, and their sons who walked in that way as well, and those who did not, because there's a lot of equal number of passages where the opposite imagery is given. Psalm 1-1 comes to mind, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So there, there are those who go the way of scoffers. There are those who walk in the way of the wicked instead of walking in God's way, and those guys face judgment. So we can summarize it this way. God has laid out a path, difficult and narrow as it may be, and it is the way to life. Walk that way. Somehow Enoch isn't just following that path. Enoch is so closely following this path, he is sprinting down the path, and he's caught up with the trailblazer himself. And God has said, well, where do you do? Why don't you just come on home with me? 
kind of the image that, that comes to my mind. God has seen Enoch's desire to be with him. Second observation then about walking with God. To walk with God means to desire God. Enoch reminds me in some ways of, of Paul in Philippians who wanted to serve the church, but he was torn because he said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. There's a love for the Lord, and all of life desire to be with the Lord, and that motivates Paul's walking with the Lord, and I think that same sentiment is being lived out in Enoch's life. I want you to know something else about Enoch's life. Look at Genesis 5.22 again. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah, 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. So at 65, he has his son Methuselah, and then he has who knows how many other sons and daughters, and all throughout that time for 300 years, as a family man, he's walking with God. Centuries of seeking the Lord, worshiping the Lord, intimate fellowship with the Lord, obedience to the Lord, all while raising a family. Doing that while he's raising a family and working the fields and, and being a part of his community and so forth. Enoch isn't off living in a cave because we think about this, oh, if I'm going to do that, well, I've got to be a monk. I'm going to go live in a cave. He's not living in a cave so that he can commit every waking hour to fasting and sacrifice and study and prayer. But Enoch is grounded in the faith and he's living it out in the midst of real life. Why? Because he desires to. We, we all have excuses as to why our walk with God isn't what we want it to be. Or what we say we want it to be. Most of the time, those, those, those excuses come down to the, the pressures of family life or work or just life in general. Oh, I'm just in a season where I don't have time to commit to scriptures or prayer or gathering with the church for worship. Oh, I'll begin to follow Christ more closely after the kids are out of diapers. Or after the kids are out of the house. Or after my job settles down. Or after I get the shift I want. Or after I retire. Or after my surgery. Or after my vacation. On and on and on. We all have. This is just all of us, okay? But do you want to know why the real reason why some of us seek intimacy with the Lord and do it and some of us don't? It's not busyness. It's not our stage of life. Those are smoke screens, and we know it. Just admit it. The real reason why some follow God more closely than others is desire. We do what we want to do. We make time for what brings us the most joy. For Enoch, his delight was in walking with God in the midst of life, and the Lord delighted in Enoch. For some of us, we say we want intimacy with the Lord. The truth is, we don't. There are things we'd rather be doing. Just driving here this morning, early in the morning, I like to try to pray on my drive. The radio button is right there. What do I want to do more? I turned it on. And I thought, no, I'm, just, I'm about to preach this. I can't turn it on. I turned it off and I prayed. There are things that we'd rather be doing, things that seem more important or more rewarding, and so we do those things instead. So I'll just say, I'm just going to leave it with this. If you, if you want to want the Lord, ask Him for His help. 
Faith comes from him. Enoch walked with the Lord and walked with the Lord and walked with the Lord, no matter life circumstances, for 300 years because God gave Enoch faith. Through that faith, Enoch loved the Lord and the Lord was pleased with Enoch and the Lord took him. Now, we're not finished with Enoch because if you're like me, you're asking, okay, so, so if walking intimate with God and obeying God like this leads to long life for some, these other guys, and no death at all for Enoch. What about Jesus? Right? That's an important question. Jesus didn't just walk with God. He and the Father are one. No one has ever or ever will have the same relationship with the Father that Jesus has. And when it comes to obedience, Jesus perfectly obeyed, so perfectly that Jesus was without sin. Enoch could not say he was without sin. Because he wasn't. If anyone in the history of the world has ever deserved to be taken up without dying, it's Jesus. And yet Jesus died a horrific death. Why? Well, Jesus' path with God, the way for Jesus, as he so intimately walked with God, was the way of the cross. Jesus obeyed God unto death. He trusted God through death. And it was through death that Jesus conquered Satan, sin, and death. It was through suffering and dying in obedience to God, in his walk with God, that Jesus' work was completed. It was through death that Jesus was rewarded the resurrection life. What that means for you and me is that our walk with God will look less Enochian and more cruciform. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What is that way? It's the way of the cross. That means we follow Jesus in taking up the cross. We follow him into suffering for the faith. We follow him into love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We follow him into death, death to ourselves so that we might walk in newness of life. Enoch was certainly hoping in God's promises. That is perhaps why he became more devoted to God after his son was born. The birth of that child, I'm speculating here, but the fact that Moses says it was after makes me believe that the birth of that child must have sparked in Enoch a reminder that God was being faithful to keep his promises. That God would bring the promised offspring. That promise, that hope, is is what we see all throughout chapter 5. We see it more clearly, though, in Lamech's life, this, this clear picture of gospel hope. So let's look now at Lamech's life. Lamech lived his life hoping in the coming Christ. You say, Dustin, where are you getting that from? I'll show you in a minute. Lamech from Seth's line, just a a little overview of who this guy is, he shares a name with someone else, doesn't he? He shares a name with Lamech from Cain's line. That's partly why uh, I, I, I believe that we see a contrast between the two. They stand in contrast to one another. And if you'll recall in chapter four, Cain's Lamech was wicked and violent, and murderous. And his boast 
was if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then his would be seventy-sevenfold. Well, in the irony of God, did you notice this? In the irony of God, Seth's Lamech, who we call pious Lamech, lived to be 777 years old. You see, you see the playoff there? It's a sign of God's blessing to this family of faith. Cainite Lamech arrogantly pronounced this 77 times curse, and in response, God blesses Sethite Lamech with a 777-year life. The only life in this line of men that isn't near 900 years, which tells us something unique is happening here. In those three sevens, jackpot, something's happening with Sethite Lamech. Our interest in Lamech, though, isn't so much his age, even though that's really interesting to me. Our interest in Lamech is in what he names his son. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, and remember, whenever we see a name and then a a quote, it tells us that's what the name means. That's why I named this child this name, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech's not complaining here. It's not a complaint, not Lamech's lament. Lamech isn't naming his son after his disgust for hard work. Lamech knows that when God promised an offspring who would destroy the devil, God was also promising that the curse of the ground would one day be lifted. So Lamech is hoping in the promise of God that he would send one who would bring relief, one who will bring restoration. And Lamech knows that this Noah might be that one. The name Noah means he will give us rest. It means he will bring us comfort. Now there's a sense, and we'll get to this in chapter 6 or later on, Noah is a type of Christ. He's not the Christ, he's a type of Christ. We'll get to that over the next several weeks. There's, there's a new creation, there's a new beginning, there's an atoning sacrifice, there's a new covenant. The blessing is restated. But for now, that's all coming, that's all very interesting, but for now I want you to see what's happening here with Lamech. Here we are, nine generations down the line from Seth, 1,500 some odd years, I, don't, I didn't do the math, 1,500 some odd years have passed and this family is still remembering And what are they remembering? They're remembering that the reason that life is toilsome is because of the curse of the ground. Why was the ground cursed? Because Adam sinned. And they know and they're remembering that their only hope is through God's promise of the offspring. That means these people know who they are. Even though they are a people who live a long time, and they might take a lot of pride in that, but they don't. They have family members who are famous for their walk with God, a guy who never died. And they might take a lot of pride in that, but they don't. They hope in the Lord. They're hoping in in God's mercy. Lamech still knows that he and his family are of the ground. They're dirtlings. And they are in desperate need of God's mercy. They can't undo what Adam did. They can't undo the sin that they're born with. They can't undo the curse of the ground. They can't undo the corruption unto death. They can't escape who they are. And so... So they hope in someone outside of themselves. They hope in the Lord to fulfill his promise to redeem them. Think about what that means. That means that when Adam passed that hope of the gospel to Seth, Seth passed it to Enosh. 
who passed it to Kenan, who passed it to Mahalalel, who passed it to Jared, who passed it to Enoch, who passed it to Methuselah, who passed it to Lamech, who, as we'll soon see, also passed it to Noah. Ten generations. It's this simple message. Son, we are sinners, and our father Adam brought death and chaos into the world, but God, God has promised that he will bring one who will bring an end to death an end to the curse of the ground, an end to the meaninglessness of life, the one who will bring true reconciliation with God. Ten generations, 1,500 years of gospel hope. That's amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? Let me just ask, though, as we think about this, how many generations does it take to lose gospel hope? One. It only takes one. As soon as one generation forgets that they are sinners in need of God's mercy, they will begin to depend on themselves and on their own works to save them. And they will teach their children the same. As soon as one generation forgets that they were created for God's glory, they will begin to live for their own glory and they will teach their children the same. As soon as one generation forgets the promises of God, they will put their hope in worldly promises and teach their children the same. It only takes one generation to lose the gospel. This isn't to say that God won't sustain the gospel through others. He will and he has. He always does. But we do have a responsibility. So Del Cerro, if we are not firmly and deeply rooted in the Word of God, if we're not living in light of God's Word and walking as Christ walked with a cross on our backs, if we're not unashamedly preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God's Word, we cannot expect this church to be an outpost of the kingdom in 1,500 years. We can't expect it to be an outpost of the kingdom in 15 years. It will not last. If we are not diligent to return again and again and again to the heart of the gospel, to who Christ truly is and our true need for him and our hope in him, then the next generation will be lost. Why? Because so much of the world, so much of our own hearts, tugs and pulls away from this message. So we need to know we cannot coast. We can't assume that because we once believed that we will always believe and that our children will always believe. All of you know that. You've seen that just in this life, just in the last three years. If we blink for a moment, if we rest for a moment, suddenly we've forgotten our own sinfulness and our need of a Savior because we're fine. A church can become focused on the wrong things, even even for the sake of evangelism. Because if you you focus too much on evangelism, then you want to be attractional. You would be attractive to outsiders. And if you want to be attractive to outsiders, what do you do? Well, do what the outsiders want. God becomes small. God's authority becomes little. People become big. 
we lose sight of God's glory and His holiness and His sovereignty and salvation, and our message gets really mushy and man-centered and pragmatic. We can grow weary of preaching the offense of the cross and Christ's atoning work as a substitute for us, and in just a few years, the church becomes unrecognizable as the people of God, entrusted with the message of God. This is why, this is why, church, that we take membership and baptism so seriously. It's why when we take the Lord's Supper, we re-examine again and again and again, why are we doing this? This is why we confess our own sins every week. We must be reminded of Christ's work for us every week because we will forget by Monday. It's why together we say the creed that was passed down from 1,800 years ago. That's why we read the Word and preach the Word and sing the Word. Every element of our worship service is meant to communicate week in, week, in, or week out that our, that our hope is in Christ alone, the offspring who destroys the devil and all his works. It's the same message that we see in chapter 5. This is the faith that has been delivered to us by the saints before us and the saints before them. This is the faith that goes all the way back to the early church, people who died to preserve it, back to the apostles who died to preach it, back to the prophets, back to Moses and Abraham and Noah and Lamech. And by the grace of God, this is the faith that is confirmed in you by the Holy Spirit's power. It's not your mental assent. It's not a testimony to how smart you are or how smart I am or what we could figure out from reading the Bible. This is the Holy Spirit's power instilling in us this faith passed down from Adam all the way to us. So it's my prayer. We'll finish with this. May God, by his mercy, by his providence, give our families centuries in this faith until Christ's return. May he give our church boldness and perseverance to continue in this faith. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that sincerely, that we would live these lives not fearing death as a testimony to Christ's work, that we would live walking with Christ, hoping in Christ, so desiring Christ that we would say it is better to depart and be with Christ. And Lord, may we take this faith and pass it down to our kids and their kids, and our neighbors and their kids. Lord, instill in us a love for you and a hope in this faith. In Christ's name, amen.